Welcome to the iJohnoclast. I'm your host, John A. Lancaster. For today's episode, I'm going to be giving my take on palimony. One of my associates, who stays abreast of the men's rights movement, reached out to me for my analysis on this matter. Now, I realize this is a rather perennial and obscure topic amid the more time-sensitive and sensational matters that have been discussed on this podcast, but even in the midst of the ominously dynamic American landscape, it's important to remain cognizant of the long-standing issues, lest the national attention permit them to grow worse while fixating on fleeting matters. Also, a disclaimer, I am not a lawyer. None of the information provided in this podcast is legal advice. None of the information provided in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, just some background information on palimony. The word palimony is actually a portmanteau of pal, as in friend or buddy, and alimony, the legal obligation to provide financial support for one spouse to another in the event of a divorce or separation. The most holistic definition I could promptly find was provided by Farlex's Free Dictionary, which describes palimony as a substitute for alimony in cases where the couple were not married but lived together for a long period of time and then terminated their relationship. Though it's important to know that not all courts require cohabitation as a prerequisite to the finding of an implied agreement between unmarried persons concerning their property. According to uslegal.com, a palimony plaintiff must prove some other underlying basis for his or her claim, such as an express or implied contract. These expressed or implied contracts can range anywhere from a written contract, so an oral contract, or even an unspoken understanding. Yes, unspoken understandings, as in assumptions based on mutual notions. To quote uslegal.com, quote, A jury may find that the cohabitants had an understanding that one person would always support the other, even if the relationship broke up, based on past behavior of providing financial support, unquote. Generally speaking, the amount and duration of palimony will be based on factors such as the length of the relationship, a significant disparity between the partner's incomes, the ability of the partner asking for palimony to support themselves, any sacrifices made by either partner to support the other, such as foregoing a career to raise children and manage the household, or any sacrifices or contributions made by one partner to put the other partner through school for professional advancement. Concerning payment modifications in general, Lawsuit.org states, quote, Typically, palimony awards may not be modified. In some cases, however, the payer partner is able to demonstrate a substantial change in circumstances that significantly affect their need to receive 
or the ability to pay support. This can be shown by either a change in the financial needs of the payee or a change in the payer's ability to continue paying the same amount. A court may also consider the voluntary retirement of the payer from the labor market in these situations. However, a payer may not modify their support payments based on a voluntary reduction of income. For example, if a payer partner intentionally quits their job, the payer may not modify to reduce their payments due to this, being that it was intentional. To obtain a palimony modification, the parties seeking to modify must file a petition in court that can exercise jurisdiction or control over the palimony case. The petition must state the reasons for the modification. Therefore, a hearing will be scheduled to determine if modification is justified. The other partner must receive advanced notice of the hearing and be afforded an opportunity to attend the modification hearing. However, if the modification is being sought in the same court that originally issued the palimony, jurisdiction does not have to be re-established. The principles upon which palimony are based remain unsettled to a certain extent among several states." Unquote. Currently, the majority of states recognize palimony laws. I was able to find a list of 29 states that allow palimony agreements. However, there was no date accompanying the document, so the information may be outdated. Wikipedia claims that as of 2016, there are 24 states which, to use their terms, legally reject palimony. Though, when going through their palimony free state list, five entries were logged due to states not having palimony mentioned in legislation, and another five were from the Just Answer Question and Answer site featuring legal professionals. I'm unfamiliar with the quality of Just Answers, so I'm not sure what to make of that as an information source. Alright, now that we've gotten some important information out of the way, I'm going to make my assessment. Functionally speaking, when we are dealing with palimony, we are looking at the relationship through the lens of a business arrangement. Of course, palimony applies to spousal relationships, where there's amorous love and other romantic factors that play into the nature of the relationship. But after the nature of the relationship is determined, the economic details of the relationship become the focal point. Opportunity costs, time and money investment, marketable skills, and income inequality are all patently economic concepts, which are used to determine alimony payments, as per the list I mentioned some moments ago. This methodology classifies the relationship as an economic exchange. So we need to employ economic tools so that we can make intelligible the effects and implications of palimony. What palimony seeks to do is essentially redistribute 
the possession of property based on contractual agreements. This is the action of palimony broken down to its most simple form. Within this simplified form, we have two components that I'm going to assess. The redistribution of the possession of property and contractual agreements. In order to make this assessment, I'm going to be borrowing from the late eminent economist Maury Rothbard. I will be making use of his work on property rights and theory of contracts, which appeared in his book, Ethics of Liberty. All right. Given that individuals have a right to privately own property, individuals may also voluntarily allocate their property as they see fit, since it's theirs to dispose of. In the event that a property owner wants to transfer their property to another, the owner transfers title of ownership of their property under mutually agreed upon terms, i.e. a contract. This often takes the form of a trade, such as a person giving money to a seller of a good or service for use of that seller's product, or the act of gifting when one party transfers ownership of property to another party without the requirement of reciprocation. If the terms that conditioned the property to be rightfully transferred were not met, yet the property was seized anyway, this would break the contract. If the contract breaker refuses to provide restitution for breaking the binding agreement, then the contractual breach is an act of theft, since that would mean property was taken without the honoring of an agreement. Concerning palimony, there would have to be a contract specifying the spousal relationship as a condition for property ownership before separation can be considered a breach necessitating the redistribution of property. If property ownership was not transferred between the couple, from one spouse to the other, under the condition of a relationship, then there are no grounds for it to be reclaimed, so to speak, by the non-original owner spouse in the event of a breakup, since the ownership of said property was never relinquished by the original owner. None of the factors previously mentioned, length of relationship, income disparity, professional sacrifices, financial sacrifices, or ability to support oneself, have any relevance in making property more or less owned by anyone unless those factors were specifically mentioned in the contractual agreement regarding the transfer of property ownership. Those factors may induce some to consider a spouse as more deserving of some sort of compensation, but that's merely an opinion of what someone should have, not what someone actually owns. This also applies to the concept of promissory estoppel, which may be applied in palimony cases. Promissory estoppel is explained by Cornell Law School as the legal doctrine that a party 
may recover on the basis of a promise made when the party's reliance on that promise was reasonable and the party attempting to recover detrimentally relied on the promise. In regard to palimony, there is no actual property transfer in a mere promise. In the words of Rothbard, quote, There can be no property in someone's promises or expectations. There are only subjective states of mind which do not involve transfer of title and therefore do not involve implicit theft, unquote. Rothbard also provided an abridged passage written by philosopher Thomas Hobbes that further explained this point. In his book, Leviathan, Hobbes wrote, quote, Words alone, if they be of the time to come, and contain a bare promise, are an insufficient sign of a free gift, and therefore not obligatory. For if they be of the time to come, as tomorrow I will give, they are a sign I have not yet given, and consequently that my right is not transferred, but remaineth till I transfer it by some other act. But if the words be of the time present or past, I have given, or do give to be delivered tomorrow, then this is my tomorrow's right given away today. There is a great difference in the signification of the words between I will that this be thine tomorrow and I will give it to thee tomorrow. For the word I will in the former manner of speech signifies a promise of an act of the will present, but in the latter, it signifies a promise of an act of the will to come. And therefore, the former words, being of the present, transfer a future right. The latter, that be of the future, transfers nothing. Unquote. So again, in the absence of a contract which specifies the relationship as a condition for property ownership, said property remains under the ownership of the original title holder in the relationship. I'm going to end the assessment on that point. At a later time, I will expand my assessment to include the role of profit and entitlements in palimony. I'm also going to attempt some kind of treatise covering joint ownership, since that seems to be a lightly talked about topic. Anyhow, if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a like, share it on social media, and spread the word. I also write essays and poems and curate interesting videos on my website, johnalancaster.com. The directory to my work can be found on my site's links page. As always, the relevant links are in the description. Thank you for listening. God bless.